Welcome everybody to episode number 35 of the Average Jake Firefighter Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Owens from the Average Jake Firefighter Blog. And finally, I remember the last alarm I ever responded to. It was my last tour of duty at Rescue 2. The last few hours, a one-story factory building where they couldn't get the fire out because a gas leak kept reigniting the flames. I told the chief we'd have to go in and find the gas main and shut it down or the fire would burn all night. Yes, the chief said. I know that's what has to be done, but I don't want you doing it, Lieutenant. This is your very last chance to get killed, and I'd like to see you miss it. Yeah, said Johnny Hopkins. Let us do something on our own for once. So they went in, Johnny and Jack Kelly, and Jack Farrell and Jack Williams, and they found the main shutoff and came back out of the fire while I stood in the street and watched. It was the strangest feeling, like my ship was sailing away and I wasn't on it. But I'm all over that now. The bells have stopped ringing in my head. All that is left is a deep satisfaction that I did something for my fellow man. That is a uh, excerpt, and the very end of the book 20,000 Alarms by Richard Hamilton from the FDNY. And this is a book who that is not in circulation anymore. It's not in, you know, it, it's very hard to find. Um, you can find it on some of the you know, thrift book sites and everything, but it's not in production anymore. And it's actually like, I, I didn't know about this book until thankfully Kurt Isaacson made me aware of it. And then I started talking to some of the other people that I run in the same circles with and, and some of the older guys, they had read it before. And, you know, this is a great book. I mean, everyone has heard of Report from Engine Company 82 and Dennis Smith and all of his stuff, but this is actually, I mean, on par with that, if not better. Um, I feel like... Richard Hamilton, who has has passed away a, a significant amount of years ago at this point, but I feel like he really captured what it's really like for a fireman at the beginning, middle, and end of his career. I, I mean, it. I was reading this book, and I was, you know, obviously not some of the fires. Uh, I, I had, ne- I have not pulled as many people out of fires as as Richard Hamilton. I don't work in the FDNY or anything like that, but just some of the personal feelings that you have while you're going through this stuff, your initial your initial wanting to join something bigger than yourself, your your you know, wanting to maybe do more in the fire service promotion and whatnot, be in charge of a crew. And then as you start to age and you start to get a little older, you you're definitely wiser. You definitely have more experience, but your body starts to break down. I mean, especially, you know, even then as as many fires as they're going, as they were going to there, his body started to break down. And we'll talk about that as we review this book. But, uh, you know, that's something that, that we'll talk about too. As, as we get older and some of us get older in the fire service, we're getting broken down by just the sheer volume of emergencies we're going through. We've taken this all hazards approach and that wears us down constantly. I mean, burnout is just as much of a thing now as it ever was. And it's just astonishing the amount of people that are leaving the fire service at 20 years of service. Um, They're getting their minimum retirement benefits and they're rolling out and doing something else because just the sheer volume of emergencies. And and I look at myself uh, through that microscope as well and think about you know, I joined my volunteer fire department when I was 15 years old. I went to my first structure fire right after I got firefighter one and uh, firefighter one actually, um, which was probably in May of the year I was 16 years old. So, I mean, and I'm 38 now. And so all of that kind of added up to each other. 
your body, you know, you, you wake up every morning and you're sore and, and, and you, you get a little bit of, even though you want to still help people, you get a little bit of that, gosh, do we really have to go to this next call sometimes? Sometimes I'd just rather get to sleep tonight. Obviously not that I not, uh, want to miss a fire, of course. Let's not get crazy here. But, uh, you know, you don't want to go on that toe pain call, even if you know that that person really, really needs your help. And so what we're going to do, you know, and, and I've picked out some good ex- excerpts from this book that we can talk about and review and, and kind of talk about how they apply still. This book was was written by Lieutenant Hamilton, um, you know, and it's been out of circulation. Gosh, the, it was written, it was published in 1975, and the version that I have is a paperback version that was um, printed in 1981. Um, and so that was the third printing of this book in 1981. And so that I know there's hardback copies. I mean, like I said, I, I'll, I would be embarrassed if I told you how much money I paid for this book. But it, to me, to read a book like this and to have it impact me so much, it's it's actually kind of priceless. Um, I don't even know what to do with it right now because I've read it and now I haven't marked it up or anything. I usually put my name in all my books. I, I haven't done that because I I, I don't know if I want to do that. It's just such a a tremendous book that's so hard to get. Um, now that I've read it, I want to keep it around, let my, my boys read it. But I'm I'm not opposed to handing this down to someone. So I've thought about even putting it in like a plastic bag so that it doesn't degrade anymore because it's an old library copy. You know, you can just tell by some of the markings on it and it's got a, a, a barcode and whatnot uh, for, the, for the library tracking system. So but I mean, there are books that you can get this book. Uh, I got mine off of Amazon, but you can get it for about seventy, eighty dollars, um, which is kind of crazy. When I believe the uh, the initial price of the book, if you look at uh, if you look on the very back cover of the book, the initial price of the book in nineteen seventy five or in nineteen eighty one, rather, when this was when this version was printed, was two dollars and fifty cent. Um, that's kind of nuts uh, that you, people are selling this book, but it's a hard book to come by. So. Uh, you know, I recommend reading it. If you know someone that has a copy, borrow it from them. Uh, get on Thrift Books. Get on Amazon. See if you can get a hold of a copy of it because I think it's a good read. Again, I think it's on par with uh, Report from Engine Company 82. Any sort of historic fire book that you've got, I think this is on par with it. So uh, let's get into it. Um, at the beginning of the book, it talks a lot about his background, a lot about his childhood. And I, there really doesn't, I mean, you know, a lot of that applies, but a lot of it doesn't. Uh, what really applies is his military service and what he did for his military service. And that kind of gives him that sense of service that, <clears throat> to be quite honest, I see a lot of people lacking in the fire service today, and I and I think I've talked about that, and especially in the midst of all this coronavirus stuff, you know, we volunteered to put ourselves in harm's way. We are the public servants. We are the firefighters, the police officers, the nurses. Look, I'm not. I don't have a death wish. <clears throat> I don't think Richard Hamilton had a death wish. I don't think anybody that joins any of these things have a death wish, right? Like we all want to be okay. We all want to be taken care of. We all want our families to be taken care of. We all want to come home at the end of the day and see our families. However, when you take one of these jobs in public safety, especially you know the fire service, police service, military, it's no longer about you. It's no longer about what's best for you. You volunteered to put yourself in harm's way. And in today's time, it's not just volunteering to put yourself in harm's way as it as it pertains to fires, okay? We do EMS. We deal with pandemics. We have hazardous materials. You, again, I don't have a death wish, but... And I believe in smart, aggressive fire ground tactics and smart, and smart, smart always comes first. Aggressive firefighting, aggressive incident mitigation, aggressive EMS, all of that. I agree with all that, but we're going to be putting ourselves in harm's way. We do everything that we can to mitigate those things, right? We wear our PPE. If you're dealing with this coronavirus or any sort of pandemic stuff, you put on your N95 mask, your gown, your gloves, all that stuff, you wash your hands. But at the end of the day, we still have to expose ourselves to that risk because that is what we signed up to do. That is what we signed up to do. And if and if you read this book by Richard Hamilton, his entire life from the time he joined the military on till he ended the fire service, he continually put himself at risk. He continually put himself in harm's way, and he had the medals to show for it. At the time when he retired, 
He was the most decorated fireman in the FDNY. He was one of the only ones who they retired his badge. And if you look at the beginning of the book, it actually has the fire department order. It says, Fire Department, City of New York, Uniformed Force, Department Order Number 82, May 1st, 1974. Effective this date, Lieutenant Badge Number 51 has been retired from the service of the Fire Department, City of New York. Badge number 51 was worn by Lieutenant Richard R. Hamilton, Rescue Company 2, who retired effective 0900 hours this date. Lieutenant Hamilton was formally presented with the badge by Honorable Abraham D. Beam, Mayor of the City of New York, in a ceremony at City Hall this date in recognition of his years of distinguished and courageous service on behalf of the people of the City of New York. This is the first time in the history of the fire department that a badge has been retired from service. That's pretty incredible when you think about all the great firemen that have come and gone in the FDNY. And even before we had our heroes that a lot of us talk about today, like Andy Fredericks and, and Patty Brown and stuff, Richard Hamilton was Patty Brown before Patty Brown was around. And for the history of the of the New York City Fire Department, the FDNY, to have his badge be the first badge that was ever retired from service, that says a whole heck of a lot. That's a life of service. That is a life of sacrifice. That is a life of exposing yourself to the risk for the benefit of others. <clears throat> so let's get back to the book here. And again, I'm going to start with his fire service career because that's what most of us are interested in, right? His his upbringing and his military service are, are very cool, and they're very worthwhile reading. I got a lot out of them, um, and it really gives into the background of who he is as a person. But uh, let's get into the book as far as, as, far as his fire service uh, tenure. The fire department called my application before the state police did. It was as simple as that. If it had been the other way, I might have been a trooper all my life instead of a smoke eater. I joined the NYFD on November 1st, 1950. I was almost 27 years old, still single, and still living with my mother in Belrose. I was older than many of the 37 other probationary firemen who were in my proby school class. Although there were other veterans there too. I was determined to be the best fireman I could just as I had always wanted to be the best at anything I tried. Also, I wanted to belong to something, a family of sorts. I hoped the fire department would give me that sort of companionship, that sense of belonging. And that right there, that right there, I mean, think back to when you wanted to be a fireman. And I know, right, in certain fire departments and in certain times in your fire service career, there are ups and downs. It can't all be up, okay? And I've gone through it as well. But that overwhelming sense of wanting to belong and serve something bigger than you, wanting to have the companionship, or as we call it, the brotherhood of the fire service, that has got to be one of those just overpowering wants to do this job. Because when you break down firefighting and being in any sort of service profession, right? Not just firefighting, any sort of thing where you're sacrificing your comfort for the service and safety of others, it can get downright crappy. It can get downright crappy. It can get to the point where you wonder why you do this some days because you're beat up, you're tired, you're usually not paid what you're really worth. Um, you know, you're not getting some of the benefits that maybe other places are. And you see these people, you maybe don't have the biggest house on the block. You maybe don't have a camper parked in your driveway. You maybe don't have the nicest truck. Maybe you have to work part-time to make all that happen, right? And you think that that's ridiculous because of the fact that you're a fireman, you're a police officer, you're, you're in the military, and you think that, you know, you should be paid more for what you're doing, and we do have other benefits. We A lot of times we have a better retirement. We have a retirement multiplier, all those things. But what we're seeing today, and you new firefighters, listen up. I want you guys to remember why you got into this in the first place. And you older firefighters too, why did you get into this in the first place? What were the reasons 
that you got into this in the first place. Because what we're seeing today is not a lot of loyalty. We're seeing a lot of people jump from job to job to job to job to job to job to job. And it just sucks. They come in, they spend three years, they don't really care. They have no more interest in being a fireman than they do playing a piano. But if you paid them enough, they'd learn how to do it. And that's where their loyalty lies. They have lost their sense of service. They've lost their sense of why we do this job. And guess what, folks? It's our fault because we let it happen. When we get a new property in the fire service, and again, I know it's different. These kids are different, right? These kids are different, and I get it. I've talked about that until um, I'm blue in the face. I know some of them are different. We have to try better ways to reach them, okay? We have to sit them down and talk to them about all that's involved with this job and what it is to be a fireman, okay? We have to sit down and talk to them about it. We have to... to to show some of those dedications like Lieutenant Richard Hamilton and show and, and give them a book like this. Give them a report from Engine Company 82, okay? I get it, man, because when you try to be hard on some of these kids these days, they run right to human resources. They complain. I mean, I literally had a guy. I was like, hey, man, show me how to throw this ladder. And he's like, why are you picking on me? I like, I'm not picking on you. I want I want to see you throw this ladder. I have to know that you can throw this ladder if I'm gonna if you're gonna rattle my engine. That's not picking on you. That you know, but that's the mentality that we're dealing with these days. And some of that is our fault, some of that is their fault, and we need to meet in the middle. Um, but we were here before them. And if we want the fire service to continue to be great, we have got to <clears throat> we've got to instill that in the next generation. Going back to the book here. Um, so as you go through the book, it talks about his initial engine company. It talks about how he becomes uh, a fireman and he gets assigned to a ladder company. And, uh, you know, and he really loves his crew. He loves his lieutenant. He gets to go to a couple good fires. Gets to go to a couple good fires. And then uh, his first tragedy kind of strikes. Um, he'd been on a couple years and we'll get back to the book here. <clears throat> The fire was at Lincoln Place in a tenement. It started out like all the others, but it ended in tragedy. I've been with 17 Truck for a couple years now, and there was getting to be a routine feeling about responding to alarms like this one. The excitement I felt at my earliest fires when I went in holding on to the back of Lieutenant Radican's coat had passed. Technically, I was still the Johnny of the company. The Johnny's the junior man. But nobody needed to feel responsible for me. I'd seen enough of death and danger, so I knew this was no kid's game I was in. A fireman does a lot of growing up in two years. Radican knew this too. He said to me more than once that I might still be his junior man, but that I had been weaned. I was glad he realized that. When we got into the building at Lincoln Place, the fire was going strong on one of the top floors and the chief ordered our company to take a hose line from engine 83 and go after it. Truck companies are sometimes asked to take a line through the fire for a variety of reasons and we knew how to handle the job. Yet it wasn't something we did every day. The satisfaction of aiming those powerful streams of water at the flames is usually reserved for the firemen of engine companies. Whenever somebody else gets his hand on one of the big brass nozzle and 240 gallons of water a minute, there's a certain extra thrill. Being on the knob is something every fireman loves because it's the point of attack on the enemy. This time, when Radican got the order to stretch the line, he gave me the job, take it, Hamilton, which meant I was going to be on the knob for the very first time. Two or three other firemen came along with me because handling a two-and-a-half-inch line is never a one-man job. With Radican leading the way, we worked our way up the stairs of the old building, hauling the heavy line behind us, waiting for the moment when we could open her up. When we finally reached the floor where the fire was, Radican leaned close to my ear and said, Okay, let's move right down this hall, room to room, and show them we know how to do the job. There was always something about the way this man said things that made me want to knock myself out for him. We kicked in one door and hit the room hard and fast with the water, then moved to a second room down the hall and did the same. The heat was bad and the steam made it worse, but because I was given this chance to show what I could do, I wasn't thinking of any discomforts. 
I was just trying to impress my boss. All we had to do now was hit the third room, then shut down and get out. Quick and neat. That's the way professionals do it, I was saying to myself. I could already feel the fresh air blowing on me at the back of the truck as we returned to quarters. Then I felt something else. Someone seemed to be leaning on my back as I tried to move forward toward the last room. It was one of the other guys with me, but what he was doing, falling on me like that. I turned my head to see who it was, and all I could see was a lieutenant's front piece on a helmet that was hanging over my shoulder. I said, are you all right, Lou? Which isn't the kind of question a Johnny usually asks his officer. In fact, it would be an insult, except I could see something was wrong. Radican wasn't leading us down the hall anymore. He wasn't even paying attention to the fire. He was just leaning on me. Then he said, Dick, can you get me out of here? The use of my first name in the middle of a fire was unusual in itself. And the tone of command had gone out of his voice. Something was seriously wrong. But we hadn't been exposed to enough heat or gas or anything else in the hall to explain it. He was barely conscious, but he knew who I was. I don't feel good was all he said, and then closed his eyes. When he opened them again, he said, I sure would be I should be sure to remember all the things he taught me. I said, Sure, sure, Lou, but first we've got to get you out into some fresh air. Two other firemen came up the stairs just then, and the three of us picked up Radican and took him down the stairs as gently as we could. When we reached the street level of the building, there was the usual confusion of the firemen and tools and hose lines and people hollering, and nobody paid any particular attention to our arrival with our sick comrade because there's nothing unusual about a fireman staggering out of a building after he's had a bit too much smoke. I hollered for someone to bring the oxygen while we waited, squatting down against the wall where all the mailboxes were. Radican made another effort to speak. He was dirty from the fire, his voice was weak, and he just smiled. You're a good guy, Dick. Thanks for the help. And remember, don't get in with the wrong crowd. Then, just like in the movies, his head turned, his eyes closed, and he was gone. Packy Radican had died right there in my arms. I mean, how powerful is that? And who hasn't been there? Um, I haven't experienced anything like that. But uh, I did have a fire service mentor that thankfully just got overcome with with heat, stress, and just fatigue during a fire. And it was scary. Um, I had about six or seven years on the job. Uh, I was senior enough to where I was uh, an acting officer in the company. I was in charge of a ladder truck, and he's a guy had been transferred out to another station. But like when he left, he gave me his seat at the table, uh, which was a big deal when he left the company that I was assigned to. He had been there since 1986, so 20 years um, in that company. And uh, he left in 2006. And when he left in 2006, he gave me his seat at the table, which was just a complete honor. Um, and at a fire we were at, he he came out and like he kind of collapsed down to his knees. And I can tell you, at that moment, uh, I wasn't thinking about anything, any fire, anything other than helping him. Thankfully, he was extremely okay. He was just—he just got tired. I mean, this was a—this was a wicked fire. It was about a quarter mile off the road. No access for fire trucks. We could basically get one engine and one tanker in there, um, and everything else had to be everybody else and everything else had to be walked in. And so we all walked in. Every company that went in there hauled tools and and everything back there, and it was just a tremendous amount of work. And then once you got back there, you had to fight fire. So it was just one of those really, really, really tough jobs. Um, and when he, when he came out of that fire, he collapsed cause he was just exhausted and, uh, man, but it was scary. And so again, I don't have a similarity where someone that was that close to me passed away, but I do have that sense of fear and, and I'm sure most everybody else does. And it's an empower, it's a powerful and impactful thing, especially when it's the first time it ever happens to you. Um, you know, it kind of puts things into perspective that there's going to be an end point 
for uh, for all of these for all this stuff, right? There's going to be an endpoint for all of us where we just have to realize that we're not spring chickens anymore. We're not, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to do this for the rest of our life, and that's something that's really tough in a job where you have to have a little bit of. I don't want to call it invincibility because none of us are invincible by any stretch of the imagination, but you have to have a little bit of, I guess, confidence and and just, you know, just a feeling of, hey, I can get this done. I'm a fireman. I'm well-trained. I'm ready to go. You know, just that, I guess, bravado or, or whatever. And, and that can be taken away in a second when you have something like this happen right in front of you. Um... You know, it's just a tremendous, tremendous, scary thing. Uh, So, and again, it goes on. And what I really like about this book is that he has these little stories from his life. But uh, he has these little stories from his life. But then he also, like, breaks them up with some excerpts of some, like, good fires. They're, like, one or two page, like, fire stories, which is really, really cool. It adds a lot of depth to the book. Uh, But moving on with the book... Up to now, I'd just been a fireman. Not to say, not that that isn't something to be proud of, if you're a good one. But the day I walked into Rescue 3's firehouse in the South Bronx, I had to learn to become a fireman plus. A super fireman, if you will. A jack-of-all-trades, high-wire artist, doctor, frogman, psychologist, engineer. The three years I'd put in in the fire department so far were merely basic training for what I had to learn now. I knew that's the way it would be, but it all became real for me the moment a big man stuck out his hand and said, I'm Howie Wanzer, welcome to rescue. Howie Wanzer, so that was his name. I'd seen him at fires. He was one of the giants. So was Lieutenant Bill Beck, a former major in the Army Corps, of engineers, between them, they worked hard to make a rescue man out of me. When the bells come in for us, Wanzer explained, the first day, it could mean anything. Remember that. It's not just smoke and flames anymore. It could be an ammonia leak, and you have to know what to do about it. You have to know that when carbon tet heats up, it makes phosgene phosgene gas, which is deadly. You have to know which way the current may be pulling a kid who's fallen through the ice. You have to know the difference between the symptoms of heart attacks and strokes. You have to know the smell of chlorine, methane, and propane. As Wanzer talked, my head was reeling, but I listened hard. The rescue truck, it's, the rescue truck itself was all new to me, too. A big enclosed affair that housed a bewildering array of specialized tools, chainsaws, circular saws, ring cutters, oxygen bottles, inhalators, resuscitators, Scott air packs, mechanical jacks, hydraulic jacks, wedges, blocks, ropes, safety belts, blocks and tackle, harnesses, tools to pry with, to bend with, to open things with, to close things with, canvas stretchers, Stokes basket, plastic body bags, blankets, so on and so forth. First time I went out in the rescue truck on an alarm, I felt an altogether new emotion. A siren on a hook and ladder didn't mean anything to me anymore. It was just a big noise that a lot of other people in the street didn't pay attention to either. But inside the rescue truck, the feeling of speed was much greater, and the siren had a new sound. To my ear, it spelled out the word rescue. We're coming. We're coming. It wasn't just a fire. It was an emergency, if we were called. Six giants in a big red box. Suicide, building collapse, firebombing. We were on our way. And man, you know, (laughs) kind of a, you know, just think about that, right? Like, we all know the, even back then, how iconic the rescue companies are. And even today, like, they're still one of the most coveted spots in the FDNY and in most fire departments, right? Like rescue companies usually aren't just filled with just random people. You have to be the right person. You have to be, have demonstrated your firemanship skills throughout and just, wow, you know, just almost speechless to how he kind of describes just the overwhelming feeling of joining the elite of the elite, 
Um, you know, and, and again, I, I'm, I love the FDNY. Like I, I'm not a, I, I, I collect FDNY stuff. I read FDNY stuff. I, I, I like it a lot. You know, I'm not like this Uber fan, like some people are, but I respect those guys and I respect everything that they do. Um, you know, some of the greatest firemen and people I've ever met, uh, are from FDNY and from the rescue companies. Uh, Bob Morris, I met him in Atlantic City, New Jersey during one of the old FDIC East days. And in eight hours, he gave me more about forcible entry than I had had up to that point in my fire service career, which I think I went there and I was probably about 23. So it was from 15 to 23, I learned more about forcible entry in eight hours from him than I had in my entire fire service career. So, I mean, tremendous, tremendous amount of knowledge. And they really, truly are. Like when, when you go to a FDIC or you go to a conference and you're looking through the stuff and you see a guy from an FDNY rescue company, that makes you think that he's in a pretty special category. And they, and a lot of times those guys are. Um, you know, other fire companies, they can have slugs, but a lot of times the rescue company guys are not, uh, you know, they're not even close to that. The me- the most mediocre rescue guy, which I don't even know if that exists, would be a superstar in any other fire company that they're in. Um, so just a tremendous, really cool you know, perspective of a guy who had been in a busy FDNY truck company, but then going to a rescue and how he looked at them as giants. I mean, I, I really, I really think that that's, that that's kind of crazy. Um, and I really, I really like it though. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really, really cool. Um, you know, so moving on in the book, moving on in the book. And again, I'm not doing the whole book, just certain things that kind of bring things into perspective. And this is another one, right? Uh, this is another one here. Um, you know, he had, Lieutenant Hamilton kind of goes along and, and, you know, he's get, he's at this point now he's been in the, the ladder, he's been in the rescue and he, and he gets promoted and he's got all these awards. Uh, you know, he's got all these awards and everything that he's won. And, but now, you know, it, this is one of the things, it doesn't matter who you are, right? It doesn't matter who you are. Um, you know, no matter how good of a fireman you think you are, how good of a fireman you really are, like people are always going to try to test you, right? People are always going to try to test you. So this is just one of those, uh, examples. Um, the constellation fire and the honors it brought were like hitting a home run early in the ball game. It gave me an edge on the pitcher, just what I needed to establish authority in the company. For one thing, I demonstrated on the carrier that I wouldn't ask anything of the men that I wasn't prepared to do myself. Also, if there were some at rescue too who had harbored some doubts about their new lieutenant's credentials, they were given this they were given some eyewitness confirmation. Hamilton wasn't all legend, I don't mean to boast, but Zercher and I sure as hell showed them what I thought being a fireman was all about. It had to be convincing. It had almost cost me my life. This doesn't mean that from the moment everybody fell automatically in line with my way of thinking and doing things. I still had personnel problems, and they were tougher to lick in some ways than the most stubborn fire. I had learned how to deal with that old enemy, but people are more complex. I guess it's like the difference between multiple choice questions and essays on an exam. A fireman really has two homes. One where his wife and family live, and the other a house where big red trucks are parked in the living room. I was determined that we would keep our home away from home as clean and comfortable as we could. Years ago, back in the days when firemen were considered little better than bums who sat around and drank and played cards all day, the firehouse was a rowdy sort of place where housekeeping came after everything else. In this respect, I soon realized that old Rescue Two Quarters on Carlton Avenue could stand some improvements. Figured if I could raise morale at the fires and emergencies, I ought to be able to raise it in the firehouse too. First thing I noticed was there was no real place for the men to eat. Small kitchen where food was prepared was at the back of the building on the apparatus floor, but the men often ate standing up behind the trucks, sitting on the back of the step of the pumper, or just on an empty box. I didn't see why we couldn't all get together and build a sitting room onto the back of the building next to the kitchen. The land was there. We had a number of guys in the outfit with skills as carpenters, electricians, masons. All we needed was a plan and some materials. When I started talking this up, I was soon made aware that not everybody in the two companies who shared the firehouse was in favor of the new lieutenant's improvements. Some of the old-timers laughed openly when a few of us in rescue talked about the sitting room and what a nice place it would be to eat and read and watch TV. 
We've been eating here behind the engine for 15 years, Lou, one of the veterans said. We don't need no sitting room. So again, Dick Hamilton at this point, and if you've read that far in the book, highly decorated fireman, one of the only medals he doesn't have at the time is the uh, James Gordon Bennett Medal, which is like the highest award the FDNY hands out. That's like the only one he doesn't have. He has every other major award out there at this point. He's a new lieutenant. He's a, he's At this point, he is literally a living legend in the FDNY. And people are still pushing back on him. I mean, that's amazing to me. That's absolutely amazing to me, but but it, it happens everywhere, right? I guarantee one of you guys out there has a has a uh, a story about that has has had that situation. As a matter of fact, I was reading a thread on Facebook the other day, uh, and I don't really get on Facebook that much. I have a profile that's pretty much all I do, and I use it to look at fire stuff. It doesn't even have my picture. I don't post anything of my kids on it. So if you're thinking about trying to find me and friend me on Facebook, it's going to be pretty boring. I I do a lot more on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, but I was reading a thread on Facebook the other day, and this is a guy who's respected. There's a guy posted on there who's respected nationwide in the fire service, and he's a good guy. He is not one of these egomaniacs that's out there trying to spread his name for fame and fortune. This is a guy who just wants to go out and teach and wants to share what he knows, and man, he is talking about how he completely gets ridiculed in his own fire department, how everybody in his own fire department hates him, but everybody outside his fire department loves him, and man, I have felt that before. You thinking that a guy who has a podcast doesn't feel that? Um, man, I feel that. I feel that everywhere I go. But one of the biggest things is that anybody who's into the job, right? Anybody who's into the job, I don't care if you have a podcast or a blog or whatever, or, or you're just super into it, right? Like you want to go out and you want to do things, man, that you are ridiculed. You are watched like a hawk and you're ridiculed, especially if you make a mistake and we're all human, right? We're going to make mistakes. That is like an impossible thing to not do is not make a mistake every once in a while. But man, you, I get that all the time. Like if I screw up, Oh, I thought you were the average Jake guy, blah, 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 blah. You know, man, I'm a human just like anyone else. I make mistakes. I, in fact, part of one of the biggest parts of leadership is making mistakes. You, you know, there's, even though there's books on it, there's no book on it because for everything that I've read in a leadership book that people think works, I have found the person that counters that. Trust me, even Jocko. I'm a big Jocko disciple. I'm a big Jocko fan. But even in his books where you would think that they're the most simplest leadership things to apply and they're and they're, and they're easy to follow and, and that he's been, man, I can find a guy in my fire department, just in my fire department, not in the whole world, just in the 600 people in my fire department that, that will discount everything he's got in his books and you have to come up with something new. So I say that to say this, don't get discouraged. Don't get discouraged. Don't let it get you down. It, uh, you know, it's one of those things that's just a fact of life at this point, right? Like it's a fact of life and we've got to deal with it. People are complex. Fires are easy. Fires are super, super easy, but people are complex. People are different. Everybody wants to be treated the way that they want to be treated for for lack of better term. So don't get discouraged by that. Even Richard Hamilton, one of the most decorated firefighters in the entire FDNY had people challenging him, had people trying to step up against him, had people trying to just crush his dreams of just having a sitting room on the back of the firehouse. So they didn't have to, to eat at the back of the engine. So again, don't get discouraged guys and girls, you know, take these lessons from the guys that came before us and just keep pushing forward. You know, if you, if you read continually in the book, and again, I'm not going to get into the entire book because I want you to try to find a copy and read it yourself. I think it'll be inspiring for you, but, uh, you know, I want you to, I want you to take these lessons. And if you read the rest of the book, you find out that he got all the lumber and everything for for his sitting room and somebody got rid of it. They cut it up and threw it away. So we had to get all the lumber for it again. But eventually he kept, he was persistent, he was patient and they built the sitting room on back of that. And he even kind of employs the tactics and techniques that we talked about with, uh, that we talked about with Randy Kern. He basically held a standard 
he basically held a standard and the uh and the guys basically either got on board or they didn't okay they got on board or they didn't man and and that's kind of what you have to do you know we talked about that with uh with Randy Kern and when we reviewed his book is that you hold the standard and you're not backing off and that's what Richard Hamilton did and eventually a lot of those guys they either shipped uh they either shaped up or they shipped out and that's sometimes and either way you win right if you have an employee who who shapes up and becomes a better employee then you won right you won if you have an employee who decides that you know you and him can't get along and can't exist, well, I, I think that's winning too, right? Because that means you'll probably get a better guy coming into your company. Because I guarantee there's somebody, there's somebody out there that's looking to join your fire company. So we're gonna go back to the book here, and uh, this is the last little excerpt that I'm gonna read from the book, and this kind of talks about starting to get close to the end of Richard Hamilton's career, starting to get close to the end of his fire service tenure, and he starts to feel a little bit different, right? And and I'll go to the book here. When 1970 arrived, I began to think about retiring from the fire department. I would have my 20 years in on November 1st. I could get out with a pretty respectable pension, and I'd only be 46 years old. My son Greg would have, would be five years old in March, and my second house in St. James on Long Island would be five years old in the fall. I thought both my son and my home probably deserved a little more of the old man's attention. Jenny certainly did. She'd put up with all the problems of being a fireman's wife for two decades. She'd known all the terrors that go with every new cast, every newscast, every telephone call. She'd often been told I was a hero, to be sure, but she'd also been told I was dead. I don't think one made up for the other. As far as I was concerned, it had been a good career. I'd had a lot of luck and a lot of rewards. I was alive, relatively unharmed by the experience, and I'd been given honors for beyond my expectations. The James Gordon Bennett had eluded me, but then I hadn't become fire commissioner either. I had five gold medals to hang on my jacket if I ever felt like dressing up for an old-timer's parade, and so many other awards that I couldn't keep them all straight in my head. Of course, you don't have to quit the fire department until you're 65. If I wanted to go on and make captain and end up in administrative post, I knew I could probably do that too. But after 20 years in the arms of the Red Devil, I was sure I could never stand for some sort of fireproof job. Jenny and I talked about it, but we didn't make any final decisions. One thing we had to admit, for a little while longer, a full paycheck was better than half of one, especially since I still felt full of strength and ability. There was another thing. I enjoyed being recognized for my work. I'll admit, I was proud when people told me I was Chief O'Hagan's model for other officers in the department. I was flattered when they asked me to talk to classes of new young firemen. And if I was useful to the department as an inspiration, would I be letting others down if I quit while still in my prime? And that's, uh, man, you know, as we sit here and start to wind down this podcast, though, you know, that's kind of the, kind of where everyone is eventually going to get to, right? Like, when's the time to go? When's the time to go? And, and everyone in every profession deals with this stuff. Everyone in every profession deals with how long is too long how much is too much how when's time to go you know do you want to go if you go too soon will you you know if you go too soon will you be missing out on some things or if you stay too late will you be putting people in danger and will people be harmed and 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 whatnot and and i don't have the answer 
I know as I approach my 40th birthday, I start to wonder about that myself, especially because I got into the fire service at such a young age and I still love the fire service. I still feel full of energy. I still feel like I can more than do my job. Even some days on my worst days, I feel like I'm better than most, but I can't lie and say that when I wake up in the morning, it's hard to get out of bed some days and not because I don't want to go to work. It's because it's physically hard. My shoulders ache every day and I do a lot to take care of myself. I stretch. I do, you know, I work out. Um, I try to eat right. You know, like I'm doing a lot these days. I take stuff to ease the pain on my joints, like natural stuff, like Jocko Joint Warfare actually, you know, to ease the stuff, on, ease the pain on my joints. Like I said, do a lot of stretching, blah, 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 blah. And it's... uh I mean, it's it's a tough, tough, tough thing to do some days. Like, I feel like sometimes I need, like, if, if you're going to have a fire, I need a good 10 minutes to get a warm-up in, and then I'll be able to go to the fire. Um, but yeah, you know, it, as you get older, it just starts to, you know, I don't recover as quick anymore. A long shift, man, when I was in my early 20s, I could crush a 24-hour shift, go volunteer for 12 hours, come home, drink beer all night, wake up at 5 a.m., go back to work, and do another 24-hour shift, and man, it wouldn't even be a thing. Like, it's no thing. Uh, These days, no way. These days, if I am up all night at work, the next day is probably gone. Um, I'm in bed usually by no later than 9.45. Um, getting up at 5, I feel like I have to do more. I have to focus more instead of on like strength building, more on flexibility, you know, all of those things. Um, man, it's just, it's a lot tougher, you know, and that's kind of the cruel part about this job, isn't it? Is that uh, the older you get, the more you know, but the less you can do. Uh, you know, you didn't know anything when you were at your peak physical ability. Now, as, as you get older in the job and you approach your, your peak mental uh, ability, you uh, your physical attributes start to wane. And that's kind of the frustrating part. And that's kind of where Richard Hamilton was at this stage in his career. He ended up hanging on for a while longer, uh, about five more years. But, uh, you know, if you continue to read on in the book, it was a tremendously difficult time for him. He started to, he started to uh, have injuries. He started to feel worse. He started not to be able to perform on the fires like he thought he could. He even started looking at fires different. Like he even put one of the quotes in the book is, in his younger years he would have chased a fire in a chicken coop, and now he looked at fires in commercial buildings a different way. He still wanted to absol- uh, absorb the risk, right? He still knew if there was somebody's life in danger that he wanted to uh, to take care of them. He wanted to try to go help them, and he thought it was one of the best persons to do it. But, uh, man, he really, really, really started to lose some of that, some of that nerve, I guess, is what you call it, right? Like, I, I, I don't really know... I don't really know what you would call it other than other than that, right? I don't I don't really know what you'd call it other than that. You know, they say the first thing a race car driver loses is his nerve. They won't stick that they won't stick that car into there uh you know, into where like they used to. Uh you know, they won't go three wide in the turn and and that's kind of where that's kind of where Richard Hamilton got. Back to the book here. Time was running out. That was pretty plain now. When the winter of 1972-73 came, I felt the cold, and my left hand and arm were always colder than my right. When I came home from shifts, I was always tired, and I didn't snap back like I used to. I even started taking naps in the afternoon. Jenny was worried. Other firemen's wives were telling her the stories about me now. Take good care of him, Ham, they'd say. Make him quit. If the Staten Island tank collapse that had happened a few years earlier... I would have seen it as a terrific training ground for the men in my company. A gigantic drill in the recovery of dead bodies. As it was, however, I was too tired to get any big thrill out of it. In the terms of number of dead and the number of rescue workers involved, it was one of the biggest operations I'd been involved in. But it happened to be in February. The weather was cold. It was a long drive back and forth across the Veranzano Bridge every day. And perhaps most important, there were no lives to be saved, only corpses to be pieced together. So yeah, I mean, 
just tremendous. You know, he knew his time was running out. And uh, again, to 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 kind of just sum up the book, it's tremendous. It is a tremendous book. I highly recommend it. It is so applicable. You might again. This book was was originally written in 1975. Uh, the version that I've got, 1981, and so many things in here still apply today. So many things in this book, and we didn't even hit on all the chapters. There's so many more things about how he goes through uh, some of the racial times in the fire service and uh, stuff that we're still experiencing today, folks. Uh, stuff that we're still experiencing today. There's so many correlations from this book that are applicable today. It's 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 crazy, and and I just think that if you can if you can get your hands on it, I know it's rare. It's a tough tough find. I know it's rare, but uh, if you can get your hands on it, you can get a, your hands on a copy of it. You know someone that has a copy of it. Go to some of these old thrift stores. Maybe they have copies of them lying around. They don't even know what gold they're sitting on. Get you a copy of 20,000 Alarms. I really think it's a worthwhile read in the fire service. And uh, so many fire, so many things that still apply today. So many things that still apply to us. So many things that just scream how most of us feel on a daily basis and, and the problems that we've all had in the fire service. Um, super, super fortunate to be able to find a copy of this book. Um, with that being said, as we start to wind down the podcast... Uh, as you guys know, the coronavirus stuff is is hitting the nation hard, and that's affected a lot of, of things in the fire service. Make sure you're supporting your local businesses. Make sure you're supporting your local fire service businesses. Um, biggest announcement that we have for that, the Fire Ground Commander Conference had to be postponed. The uh, It was originally supposed to be next week. Uh, now it's going to be pushed back to August. All previous registrations are going to be honored through that, and we still have about uh, 50 spots left. So if now your plans have opened up since, uh, we're moving it to August 10th, 11th, and 12th, still at the Henrico Theater, man, if your plans have opened up, join us because we're still having this thing. It's still going to be the same great lineup. Still going to be the same great stuff. Uh, additionally, I couldn't do what I do without the help of so many other people. Uh, the first being Taylor's Tins. Taylor's Tins, they make custom helmet fronts for helmets. Those things are made to last forever. Um, they're made out of tin. They're they're custom. Go to taylorstins.com and make sure that you get a hold of Taylor, and he's going to give you some of the best artwork you've ever seen in your life to put on your helmet front, and you're going to be able to show your company pride, show your morale with Taylor's Tins. Stop burning up leather and start getting Taylor's Tins. The other company is Vanguard Safety Wear. Vanguard Safety Wear is the makers of the MK1 Fire Glove. Those things are made for work. I wear a pair every day. They're awesome. Guys in my fire department are starting to buy them now, and they tell me they're the best fire gloves they've ever worn. I already knew that because I already got a pair. So make sure you go to VanguardSafetyWear.com or DingusFire.com and get you a pair of MK1 Fire Gloves made for work. And lastly, you know how we do. Make sure you're spending one hour a day in the gym working on your physical fitness. One hour a day in the library reading books like 20,000 Alarms. Reading the new UL study on coordinated fire attack that just came out. Watching YouTube videos, studying your stuff, practicing your size ups. And make sure you spend one hour a day doing some sort of hands-on training. You do that, and I guarantee you'll become a pretty phenomenal firefighter. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay aggressive. I'm out.